Hello everyone, this is Brian Elaine and I produce the Writing for Your Life conferences. Thank you for joining us at this very first Writing for Your Life online writers conference. Our hashtag is pound writing for your life if you would like to use it on social media. Today's featured speaker is Jana Reese. Jana is an editor in the publishing industry, primarily working in the areas of religion, history, popular culture, ethics, and biblical studies. From 1999 to 2008, she was the religion book review editor for Publishers Weekly and continues to write freelance articles and reviews for PW as well as other publications. And she also blogs for Religion News Service. She is the author, co-author, or editor of many books including Flunking Satehood, Mormonism for Dummies, and The Writer's Market Guide to Getting Published. Her book called The Twibble or excuse me, Twible. <laughs> I always mispronounce that. The Twible, all the chapters of the Bible in 140 characters or less, now with 68% more humor, won first place in the nonfiction category in the Writer's Digest Annual Self-Published Book Awards. Thank you, Jana, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. And without any further ado, are we ready to just get started? Sure, go right ahead. Wonderful. First of all, I want to apologize if I seem to be looking off to the right. I have two screens set up here to try to facilitate going back and forth between the programs. So um, there's nothing really fascinating over here. It's just where, where my information is. Um, also, I wanted to say that if you have any questions while we are talking today, I'm going to be talking for about 40 to 45 minutes, and then we'll have about 15 minutes left for questions. Um, but if you have questions in the middle that are directly pertaining to what I'm talking about right now or you just can't wait, go ahead and type them into the little To Everybody chat box on the lower right-hand corner of your screen, and I will try to answer them either during the presentation or at the end. All right, well, let's head on over to the slides. Today we're going to be talking about crafting your spiritual memoir and why and how to tell your story. And I want to be very encouraging about the importance of writing spiritual memoir, but I also want to be realistic about the, the truths about publishing a spiritual memoir, which is not necessarily the same thing. So we're going to differentiate there and also talk about some questions that are important to consider. So to give you a little bit of a flavor of what we will be talking about, Okay, so the things that we're going to be talking about are basically divided into three, and then there are subsections within each of those. The first is just to have some questions that I would like you to consider before you write a memoir, and um, just some, some good things to think about. Anyone who is writing a memoir, by nature, ought to be a pretty self-reflective person. I'm sure you already are that, but here are some focused questions to think about. The second section, which is the shortest section of the presentation, is about educating yourself in this genre and how you might best prepare for writing a memoir. And then the third is my 10 commandments of structuring and writing your memoir. Maybe it would be better as the 10 suggestions because as with most things in writing, a lot of these are subjective, but they are based on some experience. So the first question that I would like you to think about is, why are you doing this? Are you writing a memoir that will be for other people, for other readers, or are you really motivated to write a personal history for yourself? And there's no right or wrong answer here. Uh, both of those are really worthy projects to consider, but they're not the same thing. Writing a personal history for yourself is not the same as writing a memoir that is crafted for the enjoyment of other people. So thinking about writing a personal history as opposed to a memoir, just a few reasons that you might want to do a personal history, either instead of a memoir or to work on it first as a practice for that. Uh, reason number one is just so that you can remember your life. This is my favorite painting. And the secret of this Picasso painting is that hidden within the old man, you can see the barest outline there on the left of the young man that he used to be standing erect inside the old man. If you trace your eyes sort of down past the guitar, you can see the, the outlines of the young man's legs, you know. The point of the painting is that inside every one of us, there is this young person, there is still this, this child, this history that if we don't record it in some way, 
may be lost. And so it's a very important, valuable reason just to write a personal history so you can remember your life and what was important to you. Another reason is that you, <laughs> Confucius allegedly said, may you live in interesting times. And we, we certainly do. We live in times that are moving very rapidly. We see a lot of change. And even if we are not like on front here, having you know, tumultuous changes within our world and being part of important epochs in world history, it's valuable just to chronicle change and think about what has happened to you over the decades. So that's another reason to think about personal history. Another is that this is a legacy for you to pass on to your descendants, and that is nothing to sneeze at. You know, I have some family history documents, not that many, but a few that are really precious to me that were passed on from prior generations. And it's something that we can leave for those who will follow us. Another is that we can write a personal history for our own spiritual growth. And that is, uh, writing is a wonderful tool of spiritual growth. It's not an easy one by any stroke of the imagination, but it is a really effective one. And so personal history can be a way to help you understand your past. Um, I would also ask you, in addition to the question of are you writing a memoir or are you writing a personal history, I would ask you this question, which is are you writing a memoir or are you writing an autobiography? Because I often hear authors talk about those as though they were interchangeable and they're not the same thing. So here, the basic distinction is that an autobiography is the story of an entire life. A memoir, though, is something that is sifted something that is an experience or a series of experiences that you have selected from that life and you have arranged in an artful way. This is why authors sometimes will write many memoirs in succession and all of them are going to be different. But you can only ever write one full autobiography and I guess you would really, in order for it to be definitive, you would have to know when you're going to die so that you could do it right then. But it's really not a writing strategy that I would recommend. So we are talking here about writing memoir, not autobiography, not some sort of chronological statement about your entire life. In a memoir, you're going to focus in on one particular time in your life. Uh, for example, you see the memoirs of a boy soldier memoir here. Obviously that is uh, focused specifically on this time of a lost boy. Um, you see Tuesdays with Maury as a completely different kind of example, but that one focuses on a friendship. It focuses on this kind of mentoring friendship and the spiritual lessons that the author learned through this friendship. So those are very focused approaches. You can also look at a big swath of your life in terms of chronology, but focusing it on just one theme, like these are the books that I've loved or the dogs that I have loved or whatever it is, that carries you through your whole life. It might be a cooking memoir, but there needs to be some kind of unifying theme. You will not be including everything, which is something we'll also talk about a little bit later as well. Another question to think about, what about your life is going to be of interest to other people? And specifically, you're going to focus on what is unique about your experience and what is universal. Um, the best memoirs do both. The best memoirs are ones that take the particular circumstances of the author and then they are able to connect in a very universal way with the human story, the human experiences of the readers. Perfect example of this is Jeanette Wall's The Glass Castle. If you have read that, if you haven't, I really recommend, uh, recommend it. It's just a fantastic example of what a good memoir can do emotionally. And so take a look at this quote when she's talking about how emotional this experience is. She wants people to write about their lives, not necessarily for publication, but because it is so cathartic and because you learn so much about yourself, she says, it would have been worth it, even if her book had not sold a single copy, it would have been worth it to write it. And you don't necessarily have to have remarkable experiences in order to write a memoir. You don't have to be 
famous. I mean, it certainly helps if you're selling a memoir, if readers know who you are. You have an edge, I guess, in the selling department. But, but in the human department, that's not necessarily the case. Anyone can write a memoir based on their experiences. Another question to think about, and I mean this very seriously, which is if you are going to write a memoir, you're going to be confronting some things that are painful or things that you didn't think were painful that in retrospect actually feel more painful as you're trying to interpret them. Here's a quote from Jeanette Walls where she talks about how important that is, you know, how important it is to confront the past, to not allow the past to rule over you, to have power over you. Well, when you're the one wielding the pen, you can, um, you can exercise some of those demons, some of them, I would say. But it's really hard, and not everybody is ready to write a memoir. Uh, one of the best books about memoir writing is Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir, which I'll talk about in a moment. And she, she says she has an exercise that she has her writing students do at the beginning of the year. And it's interesting to her how people respond. So basically when people are recalling a childhood memory, how do they handle that emotionally? Are they looking at that and are they able to have some kind of detachment from it enough that they can reflect on and interpret their experiences without reliving them, without you know, reliving all of the pain again? And she's had students in her class just burst into tears and completely lose it because they're not ready. Well, that's a, that's a clue. You know, if you're not ready to face the past, then you're not ready to write about it in a way that is going to be helpful or instructive or certainly entertaining for other people. And that's fine. You may never be ready, and that's fine. You may be ready later, and that's fine. But be gentle with yourself and understand that it's not an easy process emotionally. And then, are you writing a memoir to get rich and famous? Uh, I will let you answer that for yourselves, but it's always interesting to me to see the, uh, you know, the wonderful fantasies that people have about what it's like to be a writer. The reality, though, is, as you see here in the Authors Guild survey, most authors earn below the poverty line. And just to drill down a little bit deeper there, with some actual numbers from the Authors Guild, 56% are going to be earning basically less than $1,000 a month from their writing, so less than $12,000 annually. And it's getting worse because of the decline of long-form magazine articles, a lot of ways that, that authors used to be able to make a living outside of books. Books are selling fewer and fewer copies. Royalties are less than they used to be for e-books versus print books. And some of these other opportunities for uh, making a living in terms of journalism are really drying up for authors. So really, <laughs> if you had in your mind that you were doing this to get rich and famous, oh my goodness, there are better ways to get rich and famous. And I would, I would recommend one of those instead. This is a very demanding and, and sometimes heartbreaking way. And you won't get rich and you really probably won't get famous you've got to be okay with that and you know there will be these stories that you hear in the news of so-and-so who was an unknown and then wrote a memoir and became famous and appeared on oprah or whatever well understand that that's in the news because it is so rare as to be almost impossible you, you can't go into it with that expectation um, there have to be other reasons why you are writing a memoir Okay, so with all of those reflective questions and possible caveats, let's take a look at the shortest part of this presentation, which is about how to educate yourself, how to get ready if you've decided, yeah, I am ready to write a memoir. This is something that I want to do and think I can do. This is the advice that I always give and no one ever takes. So you can, you can uh, take this with a grain of salt, but as a writer, I don't make a living. You know, I'm in that Authors Guild group of people who, you know, I make my primary living from being an editor. I edit other people's books, and I love it. It's way more fun than writing. 
And I always try to gently communicate to people how much better it is to wait and do your memoir a little bit later for a couple of reasons. A memoir, you know, it, it just, it shouldn't be your first book. Even if it's the first one you write, it shouldn't be the first one you publish for a general audience. Some good reasons to wait, the most important of which is your writing is going to get so much better with practice. You know, we think of, we think of writing perhaps in a maybe a too cavalier fashion and imagine that it's something that we can just sit down and do one day and it isn't. It, like almost everything else, is a result of very hard work, daily practice, things that are entirely unglamorous. This year, at, you know, at the age of 46, I started taking piano lessons. So about six months ago, I had my first lesson. And I'm awful. I'm just so bad. I just had my first recital, and um, you know, it was me with all the six- and seven- and eight-year-old kids. But even in the six-month period that I've been doing this, there's a huge difference in what I was able to do when I started in March and what I'm able to do now at the piano. Even though I'm still terrible, I'm way better than I was then. And it's just a result of parking my butt on that piano bench and trying to bang out a tune. And it is no different with writing. It is no different with writing. I mean, it's hard to be a beginner, but it is vital that we take the time to sit down and write and write and revise and throw things away and start all over again. All of the things that uh, really are not exciting about writing, all the things that are not glamorous are the things that make the good writers good. And unfortunately, a lot of other people get published as well, you know, for other reasons. But if you're truly interested in craft, if you're truly interested in becoming better, hold off on that memoir. You know, treat your life story with the respect that knows that you will get better with every book you write and that you want to bring your best writing self to that project when the time is right. Another reason, the second reason I give here is that if you wait, you will be, <laughs> your, your skin will be thicker. You will have a much better time of it when your book is published if your memoir is not your first book. It's, uh, it's really tough as a writer to get those first reviews of any project that you do. You feel really vulnerable. It's like you've walked outside you know, wearing nothing but your underwear. People are looking, people are criticizing, or at least it feels that way. But if it's a memoir that's your first book, all of that is amplified because it's your life that is on display. It's not just your writing. It's not just your book project but your personal choices, your relationships. And unless you, you know, already have a thick skin, maybe you're an attorney, you know, maybe you have cultivated a thick skin in some other part of your life that you can apply here, but a lot of us in the arts don't have that thick skin yet. So that's another reason why I try to encourage people to wait if they want to write a memoir. Try not to have it be the first book. In the meantime, one of the things that you can do that will really help you in getting published, and I'm sure that some of the other faculty on this webinar series are going to be talking about building an author platform uh, through social media, email newsletter. I know Jonathan Merritt, who is amazing. He's going to be talking about blogging, being a power blogger. Um, all of those are very good things, good uses of your time. You're building an audience while you wait to publish that memoir. So that by the time your memoir is done and you're ready to bring it out to the world, there, there's a small at least group of people who care, you know, who want to know about your life and who think you are a good writer already and they want to know more about how you got to be that person. So that's another reason that it pays to wait. Now during this time, I really encourage people to be studying how to write a memoir. I mean, I'm a nerdy kind of person and maybe your first inclination is not what mine is, which is, I think I'll go to the library or if I want to learn how to do something. But there are so many good books about how to write. Here are a couple that I like. I mentioned The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr. It's smart. It's funny. She has had years of teaching writing as well as three or maybe four now successful memoirs herself. Um, the other book just came out, and I've only barely dipped into it. This is why we write about ourselves. 
you can see from some of the, the names that are here that this is really kind of the, the creme de la creme. We've got Anne Lamott here, Sue Monk Kidd, who wrote The Secret Life of Bees. Um, we have Ayelet Waldman, who wrote the memoir Bad Mother, very interesting memoir and kind of social criticism. Pat Conway. So really good voices here. Try to educate yourself as much as you can about how other people go about these questions and how they consider writing, how they think about structure, all of that. I really encourage you to read, which is not usually a problem with people who are interested in writing. They often got interested in writing because they're natural readers anyway. But as you read, specifically, I'd love to encourage you to read in the genre of the memoir that you want to write. So if you're writing a memoir of recovering from cancer, for example, those are the memoirs you need to be reading about other people's memoirs of illness. Um, that is a genre. That is its own genre. And you need to be aware of, of what else has been published in that genre. Pay very close attention as you're reading to the artistic decisions that those people made. And how did they structure it? What did they do for their opening chapter? Um, how did they build the conflict to a resolution? How did they handle dialogue? Is it believable that they're recreating dialogue from past events? Do you trust the author? All of those are things that I would love you to think about as you read other people's memoirs. Okay, we are up to part three, which is the 10 commandments or suggestions for structuring and writing your memoir. Number one, I want you to allow yourself time to heal. There's a quote here that I love. This is from Nadia Boltz Weber when she says, I preach from my scars, not my wounds. And I think what she meant by that is she has written a couple of memoirs now, and she's certainly preached hundreds of sermons, but she doesn't focus on the immediacy of whatever painful experience has been in her recent life. And I think that's a very important lesson. If you're thinking about writing a memoir of something that happened to you last year or something that you're going through right now, the benefit of that emotionally, of course, is the immediacy of those experiences in your memory and emotionally for the reader. But that can also be a real drawback because you haven't had time yet to reflect on those things, to interpret them, to sift through them. And that is the art of memoir, is the interpreting. It is the sifting. It is the reflecting. So think about giving yourself time. You can be journaling. You can be writing about, in fact, you should be. That'd be fantastic. Writing about those experiences in some way so that you can remember how you felt right now. But in terms of crafting it for other people, think about preaching from your scars, not from your open wounds. Number two, tell the truth. Oh, this is the only one that I've got in all caps. Um, this is probably the question that I get asked most often about memoir, which is, what do I do if I don't remember that conversation that happened when I was eight? You know, is it okay to invent dialogue? The answer to that is, yeah, it is okay, as long as, well, at least it is now. It didn't used to be considered okay. But as long as you are being truthful to the uh, resolution of that conversation and truthful in what basically happened and truthful to the characters of the people that were present. So you're presenting, for example, your mother in a realistic way that, that would have been true to who she was when you were eight years old. It's okay to, uh, within reason, have her say what she would have said, even if you don't remember it word for word. It is absolutely not, 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 not okay to make stuff up that didn't happen and claim that it did, which is here I have the most famous example, which is James Frey, A Million Little Pieces, which is his memoir of alleged drug abuse. Um, he appeared on Oprah. This was a massive bestseller. And it turned out that actually most of it didn't happen. His girlfriend had not been a prostitute. Um, he 
had not been arrested and imprisoned for his drug use, all of these things he simply fabricated. And that is not okay ever in a memoir. And what's more, if you do that, you are entirely missing the point of the joy of writing a memoir, which is to be truthful with yourself and to confront the things that really happened. You are robbing yourself and robbing the reader of the opportunity for vulnerability, for honesty, for authenticity, all of those things that are only possible when you tell the truth. Now, sometimes it's not, it's not a matter of, you know, James Frey and his very obvious fabrications. Sometimes it's a question that's a little more subtle. For example, as an editor, I received a manuscript from a client that opened with several scenes that happened before he was born. And so he was, you know, inventing conversations that would have happened between his parents in his imagination, things that pointed to family dynamics. And the family dynamics that he was pointing to were real as he experienced them after he was born and throughout his childhood. But what I said was, you are breaking the trust with the reader. The reader knows that you weren't there. You were opening your book by essentially painting yourself as someone who feels comfortable fabricating scenes. That is not the contract of trust that you want to establish with your reader. Don't begin the book until you can remember what happened and don't, uh, don't invent dialogue that you weren't there for ever. There's no way that you can remember the substance and the result of those conversations. So you can see sometimes it's a little more subtle than the question of simply making stuff up. But ultimately, the reader has to trust you. A memoir succeeds or fails based on your relationship as the author with the reader. And if you are immediately having the, giving the reader very good cause not to believe you, not to trust you, then that relationship is doomed to failure. Take that relationship seriously. Take the reader's trust in you very seriously and tell the truth the best that you can. All right, number three. It's important to try to understand structure. And if you remember anything like from ninth grade English, you might recognize this as the basic plot diagram for how a short story or a novel is going to happen. Well, it's not actually that different for a good memoir. If you analyze the structure of many good memoirs, you'll recognize some of these same elements that we have some exposition, um, rising action that's going to build. It's also going to be the time when characters are developed as characters. There will be a point of climax, conflict, and then falling action, conflict re resolution. Now, every writing rule exists to be broken. And there are plenty of great memoirs that have not used this classic structure. But until you are familiar enough with the classic structure that you are, are expert enough to be able to throw it out and have good reason to throw it out, study it, learn it, practice it. Because it became a classic for a reason. You know, it became a classic because this is how people's story expectations are formed. Go to movies. See how this happens in movies. You know, I just watched the eight-part Netflix drama Stranger Things, which was outstanding, by the way. But you can, you can trace how this occurs, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, the resolution. All of it is there. Even in a, in a Pixar animated movie, you can see this happen. And those are, even unconsciously, those are the structures that we respond to as readers and as consumers. So until you are comfortable enough with them to practice them, to do them well, and then throw them out, try them, because they are generally successful for most kinds of stories. Speaking of structure, still on number three, um, structuring a memoir can be a little bit hard because inconveniently, our lives are not always told in that you know, rising conflict, and climax and then following conflict resolution format, which is why you'll see a lot of memoirs that have adopted another kind of structure. So this one is very popular. I'm sure you've read some of these books or seen them. And I know Rachel 
is one of the speakers here. It's a great memoir. Um, this idea of the year in the life, and when I wrote Flunking Sainthood, this was the uh, structure that the publisher wanted. They wanted a year in the life humorous memoir. And it's easy to structure a memoir like that. It, it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it for you because you have automatically this kind of artificial parameter around your life of exactly what's going to be included, what time period, and you have a theme. So that's why you'll see a lot of these sorts of year-in-the-life memoirs. Number four, focus on a central conflict. One of the major problems that I see with unpublished memoirs, and even some that are published, is the inability to focus on a central conflict. Uh, one that does this really well is Wild, um, which has become very popular and has been adopted into a film with Reese Witherspoon. That is a journey memoir, and a journey memoir is another kind of subgenre of memoir that's very popular because people know that change will happen, that conflict will happen, that's inherent in the idea of a journey, and that resolution will happen at the end of the journey. So it's, it's a relatively easy structure for people to pick up. But there has to be a conflict, which is why you'll see quite a few of these recovery memoirs. And many of them are great. This is one that I edited. Uh, this is by Reba Riley, Post-Traumatic Church Syndrome. I was really proud to be her editor because the book is hilarious. It's wise. And even though she did not take my advice about doing a book first, this is her first book. It's a great book. And she did give me permission to tell you her story. Um, she says that she ignored my advice about not publishing a memoir until you had a thicker skin. And that was hard for her, that some of the things that, uh, you know, some of the things that happen when you publish a memoir, they're just harder when it's your first book. All right, so the recovery memoir is a very successful genre. People really gravitate towards stories of hope and of triumph over adversity, even if it's, you know, it, it might be something massive adversity as we saw with the memoir of a lost boy in Africa or here something that is lighter someone who grew up in a fundamentalist home and was trying as someone uh, in her early adulthood to understand that and to come to her own understanding of spirituality without necessarily all of the baggage of her fundamentalist childhood so there are lots of different kinds of recovery memoir number five I've already alluded to this, but I wanted to say it again. Expect that this is going to hurt. Uh, writing a memoir is not for sissies. This is a hard process. It's some of the hardest writing that I've ever done has been personal writing. It's hard to know what to include. It's hard to um, not hurt other people and to, you know, I want to be a kind person. I want to be someone who is generous and gives other people the benefit of the doubt. But I also want to be an honest person. And sometimes those don't necessarily agree, naturally. Being kind and giving people the benefit of the doubt for their motivations when they hurt you, um, or being honest about how truly hurt you were. All of those are questions that you have to ask yourself along the way when you're writing a memoir. If it doesn't hurt, you might not be doing it right. Even if it's a lighter kind of memoir that you are writing, if you don't find it at least a little uncomfortable to process your past and to try to help other people understand it, then chances are pretty good that you don't have the self-reflectiveness that is necessary to write a memoir that will be both particular and universal. And that's okay. But... It's not an easy thing to do. Everyone imagines that writing memoir is going to be so easy because, hey, you don't even have to do research. All of this stuff happened to you, so therefore it's, it's going to be some of the easiest writing that you, you can do. And then, you know, I had this experience too. It turned out to be so much more difficult than I expected. When I wrote Flunking Sainthood, I, it wasn't my idea to write that book. I was actually commissioned by the publisher to write that book. And I thought, oh, well, writing a memoir, especially a comic memoir, that's not going to be a problem. 
and was very shocked by how difficult it was. Because when you're writing honestly, when you're writing for other people, you are confronting some of the ickiest parts of yourself and then trying to decide, well, is it, you know, is it fair that I am withholding that and making myself look like a better person than I actually am? Or am I burdening the reader with my own crap if I include it? You know, all of those things are issues that you have to navigate in the process of writing a memoir. One of the biggest issues emotionally is that we are equipped with a wonderful mechanism of the false self. And this has a lot to do with how we choose to remember our past. Do we choose to remember events in a way that already casts us in a kind of narrative of triumph or um, escape from adversity or triumph over adversity? We have, throughout our lives, cultivated these false selves. I say false self here in the slide, but it's probably better rendered as a plural, that we have numerous false selves that help us be the person on Facebook who, you know, after a hard day can go on Facebook and say, oh, look at what great thing happened today. And that great thing did actually happen today. But a whole lot of other crap happened today. And we don't talk about that. Well, that's part of the false self. And over years, over the course of years, particularly in how we remember our childhood and early adulthood, those false selves become a vital part of how we think of ourselves so much so that it may be hard to even remember what the vulnerable, true, real person is underneath the way that we want to other people to appear to, you know, to appear to other people. So we have this awesome survival mechanism of the false self, which needs to be dismantled in order to write a really strong, authentic memoir. Just keep in mind that uh, how we remember certain events that happened to us, you know, why we cling to that particular detail and not that other one that someone reminds us, maybe a sibling also happened and we're like, oh, that did happen, didn't it? I haven't thought about that in years. Well, that's because memory A was something that helped us, something that helped us become the person we want to think of ourselves as. Memory B maybe didn't, so we just let it go. And all of life and all of memory is a process of doing that. We're really good at it. And yay us. We should all you know, pat ourselves on the shoulder. But when we write a memoir, part of the difficulty is trying to go back and figure out what was the real thing that happened and not just the story that I've been telling myself all this time. Number seven. You know, this ought to go without saying for people who want to be serious about writing, but write every day, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's a few lines about what happened to you. If you're serious about writing a memoir, it's great to keep a journal. Not everybody does. Um, I have been very bad about journaling through most of my life, and last year discovered a little five-year journal where basically you write three sentences a day and then you can see on that day the previous year what you did or what you felt and then kind of follow up on it. It's been great and I feel like that's what I can do but these people who are able to fill pages and pages every day like David Sedaris, the first thing that he does every day as a writer is sit down and write pages of personal history, personal journaling and I say fully for David Sedaris and I'm so glad to read and listen to the amazing output that he has based on that, but I can't do it. Um, even if you can't do that, you can do something. Even if you can't be David Sedaris and produce this prodigious output, you can have at least a little bit of practice every day as a writer. And it does build and build and build. Number eight. Practice vulnerability without exhibitionism. And I think this is one of those things that in terms of calling it a Ten Commandments, you know, one of the ten, it's not really fair because it's so subjective. 
in what one person's vulnerability may be one other person's exhibitionism and vice versa, right? So for me, I was thinking about some of the some of the memoirs that I've read that I think have been particularly good and some that have been either too much or, you know, TMI or too little. One that I read recently that I thought was too little was um, Jhumpa Lahiri's memoir of moving to Italy and learning Italian. You know, she decided she wanted to go to, to Italy and she's this award-winning novelist, um, wonderful woman of letters, but she couldn't get in English what she wanted to emotionally in her writing. And she thought when she discovered Italian that that would be her ticket to a deeper emotion. But for whatever reason, it didn't translate to the page. And so for me as a reader, I felt like that memoir was not enough. I really didn't have enough of her inner life to be able to step into her shoes in the way that I like to in a memoir. On the other extreme, I once read a memoir of a guy who worked on a cruise ship. I think it was called Cruise Confidential. And it was just one string of, you know, drunken sexual exploit after another. And it was all about this, this guy um, hitting on women and stealing and getting drunk. And I just felt like there is nothing here for me. You know, I don't trust this person. I don't like this person. And I, I couldn't even finish the book, which for me is pretty unusual. If I started, I'm usually like a contract reader and I'm going to be there to the bitter end, but I couldn't make it through. Because I just didn't fundamentally like and trust him. And the exhibition, exhibitionism of that book was too much. Whereas in the middle, in the, that sort of sweet Goldilocks spot, I read Anne Patchett's book, which is, um, this is the story of a happy marriage. It's actually not so much a memoir as a series of personal essays. And it's perfect. It's beautiful. It's just the right mix of vulnerability and the things that she holds back for herself. And it's okay to hold back some things for yourself, to not vomit up everything for the reader. You don't have to do that. But she's so reflective, so thoughtful about what to include and what not to and why. Number nine, sift relentlessly. You don't need to be comprehensive in a memoir. You know, you, you can be impressionistic. Sometimes I think that actually the writers who are the best journalers are the worst memoirists because they want to include everything that they wrote down when they were so faithfully and religiously keeping a journal. Um, readers are going to be much more affected by one well-told illustration than any kind of chronological march through everything that happened to you. The way to know because it's very hard for us to get that kind of perspective on our own writing and our own lives, is to show your work to other people. You know, you've got to be brave and have readers who aren't necessarily going to be the people who just say, oh, yeah, it's great, we love it, you know, all of the things that your friends are going to tell you. You need to find other people who, some of them may be your friends, but they're your honest friends, the one who say, yeah, yeah, that outfit looks like crap, and you do have spinach in your teeth, and yes, this chapter does not work. Those are the friends that you really need when you're figuring out which episodes are going to speak to a reader and which are not. All right, finally, revise. Revise, 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 and revise again. With a memoir... Sometimes the revision process is actually more stringent than it is for any other kind of writing, even for fiction. And that surprises a lot of people because this is your life. You know, this happened to you. So how is it that the telling of it, that the recounting of these stories needs to be so artful? But it does. It does. In order to strike that balance between the particular and the universal, that's what you have to do. You have to re revise again and again. You have to show it to people. You have to be brave. And sometimes just throw it out completely. Whatever scene you worked so hard on that people are saying isn't as interesting as this other thing that you mentioned in passing, you need to get rid of it. So it's a painful process, but it's so necessary. Thank you. That is it for my slides and we have some time here for some questions 
That's really wonderful, Jana. Thank you so much. Uh, talk about uh, treasure trove of practical advice. Um, thank you so much for sharing all of those insights. Um, obviously, born from uh, a great num numbers of uh, opportunities to experience things, right? <laughs> yes. And both as a writer and as an editor. I'm exactly. Guessing. No, I think, you know, as you're rolling an editor, I mean, you get to see it all. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's quite valuable. You've obviously worked with so many different writers who have tried to do this and, and sometimes the right way and sometimes the wrong way. Well, we all do it the wrong way. And that's why we revise and revise. You know, I showed you that slide from Reva Riley's book, Post Traumatic Church Syndrome. I think she and I went through seven drafts, maybe, maybe eight. I'm not quite sure, but it was a lot. And that was wow. after she'd already revised it many times before even hiring an editor. So, so um, let me ask you one of the questions um, here from Randy. He says, you know, uh, thanks. It was a really helpful and informative uh, discussion. Um, from a freelance editor perspective, can you talk about how you work with someone who wants to be published? Maybe you can describe, you know, how how that process works, how the business model works, things like that. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, I'm a developmental editor, so that means that in the process, I come pretty early in the process, even at the point where people might be taking out whole chapters and reorganizing sections within a chapter or scenes if it's fiction or memoir. Um, a developmental editor is the kind of editor who is a kind of big picture person and is going to tell you things like, you know, that character is not quite believable or this is fantastic, but this other part is not very compelling. That's what a developmental editor does, as opposed to a copy editor who comes along later in the process. And a copy editor is the kind of editor who is primarily concerned about uh, grammar, syntax, spelling, mechanics, usage, which I think are hugely important, absolutely, and will also, you know, sometimes spend some time with others on those things, but primarily that's not my ultimate job as a copy editor that comes later. So as far as how the process works with authors, um, I usually am booked a couple of months in advance, and right now, because I'm also writing a couple of books myself, Right now, this fall and winter, I'm not taking any new clients until this spring. Um, I'm still editing my pre previous clients who are keeping on with writing books, and that's great, but I can't take any new clients right now. When I do take new clients, um, it's all sorts of things. I, Because I have a PhD, I also edit some academic books as well as some of the more popular books like um, popular nonfiction, also memoir, and some fiction. But, uh, you know, I love the variety of it. I love having so many different kinds of books to edit. One of the ones that I edited recently was about sports, which is hilarious for me because I'm like the most uncoordinated person ever and I don't know anything about sports. But it was about writing primarily. So people, authors will contact me through, their, through my website and um, usually a couple months in advance of when they want to get started. You should know in hiring an editor that people tend to underestimate how long it will take. Um, it takes a long time to edit. And sometimes, you know, for a standard length book, you might be looking at 30 or 40 hours of someone's time, possibly more if it's a longer book or if it needs multiple drafts. So go to uh, the Writer's Digest website or also the Editorial Freelancers Association website and you can find what are the prevailing rates for the kind of editor I need. A developmental editor is a little bit more than a copy editor, but a copy editor is a little bit more than a proofreader. So depending on the expertise level that you need, you can find the rates there. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, this question from Jennifer talks about uh, whether a structure of tying together unrelated chapters lends itself better for a memoir, or is that better targeted in a different way? It's a really good question, and in fact, that just came up pretty recently in one of the books I was advising on. Um, I'm a bit more of a traditionalist when it comes to calling something a memoir in that I prefer it to have a definite plot. And some of the plot elements that we spoke of before, which is a conflict, conflict, uh, rising conflict, falling conflict, all of that is 
pretty important if you're having a standard memoir. However, that's not to say that there aren't other kinds of forms, one of which would be personal vignettes that are tied together. And sometimes, you know, even very successful authors like M. Padgett, I mentioned the book, This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. Really, that's kind of what that is. These are all scenes from her life, and they are loosely connected together, but there's not one connective tissue that's driving the book in the way that a traditional memoir would have it. I think, in part, she gets away with that because her publisher's probably really thrilled to have any book to published by Ann Patrick. <laughs> exactly. She's so amazing and she's very famous. Um, so that they would be like, yes, let's take that thing you wrote for the Atlantic and let's take that thing you wrote here and let's put them all together in a book, even if they don't cohere. And for her, it always works. But maybe it's a little bit different for a beginning author. But it's also easier to write that way. I mean, it's so much easier to write short vignettes than it is to try to tackle the structure of a book. So for a new person getting started who's got a bunch of different ideas that could go in a different directions, you know, um, it sounds like primarily nonfiction related things. Um, Lindsay's asking, you know, are there any particular things that you should not do to block yourself later on? In other mm -hmm. words, are there any things to kind of avoid, you know, in the beginning or pr prioritize in the beginning that could, uh, keep you from causing or having problems down the road? Does, does she mean having problems getting published down the I road? I think so, yeah. Problems yeah. With the writing. I think okay, she, she doesn't want to block herself is what she's saying, okay. you know, down the road. So more of a branding question? Probably. <laughs> I'm the last person to ask about that because I've done everything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Publishers will tell you, and with good reason, that you should try to imagine yourself as a brand and to be a consistent kind of brand so that readers know, you know, when they open a Eugene Peterson book, they're going to be getting really thoughtful, theological, biblically informed writing. When they open something from Ted Decker, they're going to be getting a novel that is exciting and, you know, has Christian themes, but is, you know, really good suspense. I haven't done any of that. I haven't paid attention to any of this good advice. Um, my approach has always been, hey, what's that shiny thing? You know, what's that really cool thing, that rabbit trail that I would like to go down for a year of my life or maybe more, and let's do that. And I've never regretted it. You know, the books that I've published have been so wildly different from each other, but I've loved every one of them. Well, okay, except for that other one, but just that one that I didn't totally love. And... I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it, you know, even if it meant that I would be a better selling author or a more predictable author or a brand. I don't know. I've just been very happy to do it this way. Yeah, so, you really haven't painted yourself into a corner, right, or anything like that. <laughs> no, if anything, I've painted myself into too many corners, you know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good to know. I think, you know, you, the approach you have taken is different than, than at least some others, like, mm -hmm. like you pointed out, uh, some others have been more consistent, you know, in terms of their focus, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that that's right or wrong. Right. So, um, the question from Ruth has to do with kind of target audience and assumptions around shared culture, mm -hmm. uh, assumptions on the part of your readers and kind of knowing whether or not you have to explain things or give a, pers a greater perspective because you can't assume that your readers may already have the same culture or already have the same perspective that you're writing from? Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that? That's a great question because if there's ever a genre that readers will cross their own barriers to read, it's memoir. You know, you may not be uh, disabled, but maybe you would be excited to read the story of Johnny Erickson Tata or someone else who has had that experience. And so this question, I think, comes up more with memoir than it does with other books, this question of cultural specificity. So yes, as a writer, you definitely want to be sensitive to the fact that your particular cultural experience, which is why you're writing a memoir in the first place, is not going to be shared by everyone. And that's increasingly true today. You know, we don't have we have, we have fantastic diversity in the United States, which is where most of your readers will be, presumably. 
And so you need to assume that people don't share your cultural heritage or experience. Um, but having said that, we also live in an era of, of publishing fragmentation. So that, you know, I mentioned that books are selling fewer copies than they used to sell. Books are also selling in a more niched manner than they used to sell. So that your tribe, as Seth Godin would put it, you know, your tribe is going to be interested in this. And many of those readers may actually share your cultural experience. And that's why they picked up the book in the first place. You don't want to operate from that assumption, but that's an affinity you know, I was talking with a friend of mine who grew up uh, Iranian-American at a time where very few Iranian-Americans in the Midwest, you know, where we grew up, there was nobody for her to talk to. And she discovered a memoir by a young woman, a little bit older, <coughs> written about her experiences. And it was just like, finally, somebody understands what my parents were like and what this whole experience was like and the kinds of things that people called me down the hall in high school. So don't abandon your cultural specificity because that is what is great about your memoir, but also don't assume that everyone is going to understand that or share it. So let me ask a question in a different direction here. You've published with a few different publishers, including a book that you self-published. Can you mm -hmm. speak a little bit about um, you know, not only your own experience, but what recommendations you would have for others in terms of their choices uh, in these different directions? You know, I chose to self-publish the Twible for a couple of reasons. The first was that my agents, you know, she looked at the proposal and she said, this is so interesting and so funny and I'll never sell it. You know, she liked it, but she said, there's not enough of a market out there for this book for, for an agent to be interested in this. Next, you know, um, so there are other projects that I will publish commercially with her as my agent, and that's great. But for this one, the Twible, I wanted to just have it be a great thing. So the second reason that I wanted to self-publish was that I'm a control freak, and it was so great to make all these decisions. Like, as an author, you don't usually get to decide the cover of your book, the size of your book. You don't get to decide what the design looks like inside the pages, and self-publishing gives you the chance to do that. Now, I had a really good experience with Amazon, Amazon's Create Space is easy to use. It's even more versatile now than it was when I did this a few years ago um, in terms of the, the trim sizes that you can have, paperback, color, you know, all of these things that are available now. And it's incredibly reasonably priced. So, you know, I, if, if you're doing this for the first time, I would suggest investigating Amazon's Create Space unless you have a, a really specific kind of book like a cookbook that needs a lot of full-color illustrations, there are probably better self-publishing outlets for that sort of book. But if it's just just a straight, you know, narrative book, it's, it's a great thing, Amazon. Yes, uh, I've used uh, CreateSpace for uh, mm -hmm. one of Frederick Beekner's books that we self-published, and I also found it to be a very good experience in, in a variety mm -hmm. of ways. Um, you talked about a book agent, and in the other webinars that we've had before, <clears throat> um, we've heard consistently that to get to the certainly bigger publishers, having a book agent is very important. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of how you found your specific agent and any recommendations that you have regarding book agents? Sure. Um this is my second agent, so I had another agent. For me, it was a little bit easier because I worked in publishing. I started at Publishers Weekly, and I was there for nine years. And when you work for PW, you just meet so many people in the industry. And I met this agent because I had organized a panel of, of scholars and editors and agents talking about trends in, in academic publishing, and I just really liked her, and I thought she was sharp. She's also you know, very tough. And I'm not necessarily very tough, so I need that in an agent to go out and like do battle on my behalf. Um, so I don't know that my experience is all that typical. I wasn't one of these people who wrote to 100 agents and only heard back from one. But sometimes that backdoor approach is actually the better approach. If you know an author who has an agent and that author uh, 
might do similar things that you do and would be willing to make an introduction. And they might not be willing, don't take it personally, but, but if they'd be willing, that has a lot more chance of being read than just sending something to the agent's slush pile and kind of crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. It's all about networking, right? <laughs> it is so much about networking. <laughs> So um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that you're currently working on two different books. Is that correct? You want to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about uh, what you're doing? Sure. So the first book, I actually just got back yesterday um, from a trip to New York, and I am co-writing a book about a medieval prayer wheel. It's kind of a lost spiritual practice that we are hoping that modern readers will embrace and, and think is as amazing and cool as we think it is. So that will be out in... I guess, Lent of 2018, so about a year and a half. Um, and the other book is still more in development. I raised $20,000 on Kickstarter to do an academic survey of Mormons in America because the, the kind of anecdotal narrative is that a lot of younger people are leaving the LDS faith. Is that true? And if so, why is it true? What do they think? What are their attitudes? So we launched a, a major national survey at cost a boatload of money to do this, but it's really amazing research. And so that will be um, more of a scholarly book, less of a popular book that will be out in 2018, 2019, I don't know. Very interesting. Again, you know, your eclectic uh, set of uh, writing projects and books is just kind of amazing, yeah. Jana. Oh, well, thank you. But, you know, I, I appreciate you, like, casting that in the positive rather than saying, <laughs> what a dilettante, you know, and she can't focus. So thanks. No, I mean, quite frankly, to me, it speaks to your broad skill set. I mean, many, many people would not be able to do that many different types of books well or, or be asked to do, you know, that time, that many types of books uh, because obviously they have respect for your ability to do it. So I, I think it's quite, you know, impressive. <laughs> Thank you. It's fun. I mean, honestly, it's, it's just fun to be able to try a lot of different things. So, speaking of which, you're also a journalist, among other things. <laughs> Do you want to talk just for a moment about, you know, the stark can contrast, I'm sure, between writing a, as a journalist versus a longer-term project of writing for a book? You know, um, I, I would love to be able to claim that label of journalist, but I don't deserve it. Um, I'm a blogger. Well, I'm a columnist for Religion News Service, so I work for a legitimate news agency, but I'm not required to adhere to the same kinds of journalistic standards. I can write in the first person, for example. As a columnist, I'm actually encouraged to write in the first person. So it's a little bit different, and um, I would love to be a journalist, but I don't feel like I quite deserve that. Um, but the other question, the other part of your question is about the immediacy of journalism and blogging versus the long form of writing books. And I'm sure this is something that Jonathan will talk about or has talked about in his part of this series as well. But for me, it's been good. I only started blogging because my publisher told me I had to. You know, my publisher actually put it in the contract that I was going to blog <laughs> four to five times a week and that I had to call my blog Funkin' Sainthood in order to promote the book. Well, and I thought it was a good idea. I mean, I, I had no objections. I felt like it was something I ought to do anyway and hadn't really mustered up the time and energy to do but um, it was a mistake to name the blog after my book because the blog turned into something totally different. And it's still named Plunking Sainthood. And the book and the blog, I mean, I think it's just confusing. Like back to that branding question earlier, it's confusing that the blog and the book are so different from each other in focus. But in the, in the beginning, the blog was supposed to be like the book. But those were not the posts that were popular. And so, you know, my First Belief Net and then RNS encouraged me to blog about what was actually people were interested in, what was getting traffic. Um, I like the format of blogging. I like the sense of publishing something, being able to revise it immediately if I've made a mistake, but just publishing something that can answer what's on people's minds right now. What's on my mind is often what's on other people's minds, and that is kind of satisfying. With a book, you're laboring on it alone for a very long time. It can be isolating. It's certainly a very long process. And then even from the time you turn in the book until the time the book is published, 
Yeah, I've talked to authors who, when the time comes to promote their book, they don't even remember it. Like, they have to go back and read it again because it's been over a year since they turned in the manuscript and have to remind themselves what they said. So blogging is completely different. There's this immediate gratification of being able to interface with readers who may violently disagree with you, but at least they're reading. So, Jana, one last question, um, and this is kind of a practical thing. You're a very busy person juggling lots of different commitments, um, like many of us. How do you set aside time to write, or what other you know me methods do you use to focus on that and to make sure it gets done? Well, a couple of things. The first is that every Wednesday I only write, unless I'm traveling uh, for business. But other than that, I'm and I leave the house. I go somewhere else to write which is a, a sanctuary of wonderful books and it's, it's a very inspiring environment. Um, and sometimes, some weeks I'm so busy with editing and parenting and whatever else that I don't have time any other day to write. So I focus very heavily on what I need to do on that Wednesday. Other times, life is a little bit more manageable and I can also write on other days, at least a little bit. I'm a big believer in the 20 minute increment, you know, setting my timer for 15 minutes or 20 minutes and then just writing whatever I can in that and kind of getting out what's been in my head when I was taking a shower or walking the dog or whatever, putting it on paper so that when I have the more leisurely time to sit down and truly write, I haven't forgotten anything. Well, thank you so much, Jana, for joining us today. We really appreciate uh, all of your great insights and experience and uh, your ability to articulate everything so well.